This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Oscar Edmondson and I'm joined today by James Heal and Madhumita Mergia, who is the AI editor for the Financial Times. So this week, the Prime Minister has hosted his landmark AI summit at Bletchley Park, which wrapped up with an interview with Elon Musk. We can hear a section of that interview now. I think we are seeing the most disruptive force in history here. Um, You know, where we have for the first time, we will have for the first time something that is smarter than the smartest human. I mean, it's hard to say exactly what that moment is, but, but there will come a point where no job is needed. You can have a job if you want to have a job for sort of personal satisfaction, but the AI will be able to do everything. So, James, uh, coming to you first, do you think that Rishi Sunak's AI summit was a success? I think so, particularly when you remember the drumbeat of criticism before this summit. No one was going to go. China wasn't going to go. And if they were going to go, they wouldn't get a deal with them. It was going to be humiliation. Oh, Elon Musk to sit down. Actually, if you look at all of this, Given where we were a week ago or so, I think that there is achievements in this summit, getting the Bletchley Declaration, at least some kind of dialogue going around what the rules should be, China and the US signing up to that. And I think that it was, uh, if you look at the guest list, for instance, it was a sort of who's who of AI. The one criticism I've heard a bit about is obviously on Monday, there was President Biden signed the executive order on AI and saying, you know, Kamala Harris was there saying that America's going to be the one who's the real global leader in all this. I don't think anyone within the British government seriously, first of all, thought that the UK would necessarily outstrip America given their great industrial capacity and technological space in the world. But I do think that I would rather see this from a different point of view, which is that I think it's had a galvanising effect. I think having this Bletchley conference, really beginning this this conversation, getting other nations competing to have the next summit and encouraging them to also develop things around AI safety uh, institutes, a task force like in the model of Rishi Sunak means that I think the Prime Minister does have credit to this. Talking to people within government, most of them are pretty sanguine about it. They expect they, they only expect you know the polls to go you know, plus five Tory bounce on the back of this. But I do think there's a certain logic to thinking that in a year's time, having this conference will look quite prescient, given that the, we all expect AI to play a much greater role in the life and minds of voters, and they become much more aware of it within a year's time. So I think it could be ahead of its time, uh, even though I'm not quite as uh, that beat from the view of Elon Musk, who suggested it would be one of the most important conferences of all time. Madhumita, now you've been in Bletchley this week. Can you sort of give us a sense of, of what you think went well and perhaps what didn't for the Prime Minister? Yeah, sure. Um, th- there was definitely a sense of excitement palpable there across the two days. As James mentioned, you know, the Prime Minister did manage to convene really the, the, the creme de la creme of AI companies. You know, we had CEOs across Google DeepMind and Anthropic and senior people from Microsoft, Google, Meta, and so on. Nick Clegg was there, for example. But also, I think the fact that they brought China, the EU, the US, alongside Brazil, India, Nigeria, you know, there was such a multitude of views and participants. And um, from, from what I've heard from talking to multiple participants, there was a really lively debate you know, on Twitter, we see these spats where you feel like people could never agree and, you know, that, that, that they're really at loggerheads. But really what I heard from, from talking to people there was that, yes, there was debate and difference of opinion, but actually in a much more considered and reasonable way than you would otherwise expect 
And people felt it was quite constructive two days, actually, moving towards some kind of alignment across countries and corporations and civil society, sort of figuring out what needs to be done. That was kind of the big outcome of the summit, where people decided, this is important, here's what needs to be done. The other kind of, I think, interesting thing to come out of it is the next two summits were announced, which sort of shows that there's a legacy that's going to be left behind from this summit. Um, there'll be South Korea in six months and then France. Um, so I think it'll be, you know, fascinating to see how the 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 summit itself evolves uh, over the next year or so. Yeah, just to add on that, I, I do think this was a success. And given how much we often criticise you know, the government uh, and, and often the Foreign Office on this podcast, I think full credit goes to them for organising it, bringing it all together at a time, of course, when so much is happening in the Middle East. And as I understand it, Rishi Sunak had a number of bilaterals with countries relevant to what's happening in Israel-Palestine alongside that, as well as doing his hosting duties, his summitry. I think some people have kind of suggested this is merely a pet project for him. Yes, the Prime Minister's passionate about it. But first of all, there's nothing wrong with a, a Premier or a leader associating themselves a la Harold Wilson, the white heat of technology with the future. But second of all, alongside that, he was also doing pretty important work, what was happening with other spheres. So getting all these world leaders, these are, it's not just talking about AI, these things spill over into other fields as well. So I do think that that is an underappreciated aspect of this conference this week. Overall, that the, the takeaway is positive, but that doesn't mean that there weren't sort of tensions simmering under the surface, differences of opinion and one-upmanship. I think there were examples of that over the two days as well, both on the technical front as well as the sort of international political front. Uh, on the on the question of the US in particular, you know, the the Safety Institute, which was announced by Gina Raimondo, was supposed to, is supposed to be sort of complementary to the UK AI Safety Institute, which is headed up by Ian Hogar. But you did have, you know, the US Vice President in London on the same day that the Bletchley Summit was going on and at this event and press conference that she held, she talked about how the US was was gonna sort of assert its dominance in the space. And she apparently also held an evening drinks at the same time as there was sort of an evening drinks party in Bletchley. Um, so I think a few people I spoke to talked about this being sort of race to the top with the US trying to put its own stake in the ground in the same week that like the UK was trying to kind of convene this this special event. But I think that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't kind of nasty in any way. This is something that actually brings more attention in a way to what the UK is doing. There, there were also uh, lots of a lot of debate around on the AI front itself, you know, questions of should these technologies be open sourced? Should they be transparent and available to lots of countries and lots of um, companies? Or should they be kept closed because it's unsafe to do so? And there's quite a lot of sort of healthy debate over that question as well. Yeah, well, Madam I, I did want to ask you as well, to what extent do you think it's fair to suggest that the UK really is on the on the sort of cutting edge when it comes to AI? Because Rishi Sunak was forced to sort of concede that the UK won't be at the forefront when it comes to things like regulation, which is which is obviously going to be one of the big debates when it comes to this topic. Yeah, I would actually say that um, we're comparatively stronger on the AI technology front than the setting the rules of the road on regulation, right? Um, on the on the technical front, you know, we've got DeepMind was founded here, which everybody talks about. And yes, it's now owned by Google, but they have managed to create this community of really cutting edge AI research that's going on around here. And people that leave DeepMind still stay on in the UK. Um, and we've got this really healthy startup community now with 
audio AI, video AI startups coming up as well. So I think, you know, it's fair to say that we're probably up up in the top three, you know, the US, of course, leading the way. Canada has a really strong pool of talent and then the UK as well. So I think that's fair. On on regulation, though, you know, we can convene people and have the conversation, but remains to be seen what the EU does with the EU AI Act, of course. And then, of course, the US is now crafting its own regulation. And I think those two, along with China in, in that domain, will, will lead the way when it comes to the, the rules of the road. Um, and James, this sort of pivot towards AI and the, the extent that this is Rishi Sunak's pet project, is that going to come at the expense of provisions or government support for traditional jobs? I mean, that's one of the worries that people will have. Mm. Well, I think that it's going to be the reality that we're all dealing with. I mean, I think that politicians have often been quite slow to act in this area. And so it'll be a matter of controlling what they can do. I mean, it's, the private sector is obviously going to be racing ahead on this. And it's going to be interesting questions for things like white collar jobs. I think the, the question, I think the best way to sell AI in a kind of positive sense will be to talk about how a lot of the more menial elements or the most labor intensive elements, processing ability jobs about different bits of government, for instance, you want maybe like welfare system elements, etc., could be processed and made better. And I think that's probably in terms of the government, the thing they can control. And I think that was looking at what President Biden did with his, his executive order on Monday. That seems to be the space in which they have most control over, unlike, for instance, questions around intellectual property and um, people getting annoyed, obviously, that their, their 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 data is being sourced and fed into AI and then being effectively stolen, in their words. I think that's a more tricky area. Where I think the, the government can control is obviously the, the public sector sphere. And I think how AI is involved in that is a conversation we're going to be having. It's something also where streeting has been talking about in terms of health policy. So I think that's going to be the kind of big word. I mean, we've had for the last 10 years, reform was the big, great watchword of you know, the NHS, etc. last 10, 20 years. I think AI has the potential to be that for the next 20 years. Yeah, and uh, Madhamita, the um, Elon Musk interview, which the, the week ended with. Now, Rishi Sunak's come under a little bit of fire for his sort of interview style, with some saying that he approached Musk a little bit like a, like a fanboy. What, what was your interpretation of that interview? Yeah, there was a um, debate beforehand uh, amongst journalists who were at Bletchley Park about, did we think Elon was going to be interviewing the Prime Minister or would it be the other way around? And I think... There was some surprise that it was the other way around. But, you know, the, the conversation was free ranging and, and Elon is always happy to get on his soapbox and talk about everything. But it, it was surprising, I think, that it, it would be the prime minister interviewing Elon, who isn't necessarily an AI expert. You know, he's he's obviously a very successful entrepreneur, a businessman, uh, you know, owns Twitter and so on, but he has funded some of the major AI operations today, including DeepMind and OpenAI. And he's now got his own company X, but he's not really in any technical way or even kind of practical way, an AI expert. Um, So to see, you know, that conversation where we're sort of looking to him for answers, it, it does, it does seem fawning and a bit confusing. But you know, it seems that Elon has an outsized influence in terms of his opinions and views, even if it's on things that he's not necessarily expert in. So I can see why, you know, the prime minister wanted to sit down and have that conversation. Um, but unclear why we, we you know, he, he thought that Musk should have the answers. And James, just finally, elsewhere, Keir Starmer has given a speech today on his growth plan. And this is, of course, in the context of his resistance call for a ceasefire and the resultant Labour split because of that. Can you take us through some of the news lines? 
Yeah, I mean, well, it's a speech she made in the northeast of England to a series of businesses there, and it's really been completely overshadowed by the, th- the questions everyone asking, which is uh, labour splits. Uh, we've been keeping a up-to-date list on Coffee House. We've now got one in three Labour MPs are calling for a ceasefire in spite of the party policy. And, of course, Kirsten was asked about that and effectively said, well, they shouldn't really be doing it, but we're not really going to do much in the way of discipline. So I think this is one of those things. I mean, famously, Labour in 1975, they suspended collective cabinet responsibility to allow both sides to campaign on the European question. Israel-Palestine is one of the big historic fundamental splits for the past 50, 60 years in Labour circles. But I think there was a couple of interesting things that I wanted to pick out briefly, which got overlooked, I think, because everyone is focusing, obviously, on Israel-Gaza. One of which is that in Starmer's speech, he mentioned reforms to judicial review. And I think that's an example of Labour seriously thinking about industrial strategy, what that would take, the legal barriers. And I think coming from Keir Starmer, as great an embodiment of the legal legal establishment as you'd have in recent times, that is very interesting. So I think a lot of that kind of growth agenda perhaps associated with the kind of some of the vote leave lot and and some of the um, you know the Liz Trust government may well be taken on by the more sober, respectable and, and maybe perhaps more pragmatic figures of Reeves and Starmer. And I think the other interesting question, of course, though, does come at the end where he talks about you know, a modern industrial strategy on a statutory footing, free from the whims and wreckage of Westminster. Now, I understand that his basically argument there is we're going to be long term, we're going to be stable. But of course, it means Westminster to drive all things through. And I don't really understand... It's this fundamental tension. It's always parties stand for election to office and they say, we want to give power away. I've got this great levelling up, this great taking take back control bill, which he's made a whole thing about giving more power to councils. And yet, is the industrial strategy going to be free from government control or is it going to be set by the government? How can it be free of the whims of Westminster when you need a government, quote, that gets involved, that rolls up its sleeves? So how interventionist will they be? These are big things to work out. They're obviously trying to put a bit more meat on the bones. But I think the fact that they're thinking about judicial reform is a sign they're thinking about them seriously. Great. Well, thank you very much, Matamita. Thank you, James. And thank you very much for listening.